This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, U.S. universities like to think of themselves as forces for the public good. But we'll speak with the Black professor who says American higher education is a relentless gentrifier that spreads police terror and low wages. And a Black Alliance for Peace activist says the United States is trying to isolate China because Washington cannot compete with the Asian economic juggernaut. But first, Two Black is a poet, writer, and podcaster based in Indianapolis, who recently authored an article in Black Agenda Report titled, From Black Wall Street to Black Capitalism. Two Black says the business district of the black neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma, that was destroyed by whites in 1921, was actually more like a black Main Street than Wall Street, and employed very few black residents at the time of the massacre. Yeah, when you look at the stats from the time, most of the people living in Greenwood, which is the area where Black Wall Street existed, worked for white employers. They had substandard housing, I believe, up to 95%. I quoted in the essay. So the idea that every black person was, for lack of a better word, balling or, you know, millionaires or these black folks living in utopia, it just doesn't add up. And I, I would also add the Elaine Massacre, where 237 black people were murdered was, I'm not going to get into a battle of what's worse and what's better, but that was in a city that today only has about a population of 600 black people. Um, Greenwood itself was 10,000 black people alone just within that neighborhood, according to reports. So I think a lot of times we don't hear about the lame massacre because those black people weren't business folks. They don't live up to our perception of some type of utopia some type of um, black elite status. They were sharecroppers. And all 237 people were black that got killed. And uh, in Tulsa, according to reports, out of the 300 people that they say died, maybe around 75 were white because there was also a self-defense force within Tulsa, Oklahoma, within the Greenwood District that doesn't get talked about either because that doesn't fit the narrative as well, that there was actually black folks rising up and trying to protect the black men from being lynched that caused this to escalate. It wasn't just black, white people killing black people because they were jealous of this Wakanda or whatever. That, that's just not how it went down. So there's just a lot of myth-making around this storyline. So that's why I felt to address it. Yes, and the Elaine massacre that you referred to was in Elaine, Arkansas. And white vigilantes hunted down black folks in the woods, in the fields, massacring them. Uh, The incident began because Blacks were trying to organize as sharecroppers and Mm -hmm. uh, small landowners, and that was crushed. Yep, and they were sharecroppers, right? So sharecroppers, farmers, again, that doesn't fit the tale that is being spinned today because there's no redeeming that. Um, But I think by trying to sell this idea that Black people had all of this wealth once upon a time, which, as we already pointed out, isn't true. It actually, in a way, repaints the empire, America, 
as somehow being redeemable because it's like, well, if we can just go back to that, if we can just bring back Black Wall Street, if we can just bring back this time when Black people were flourishing, then then maybe Black people can finally live out the American dream, right? And that, and that again, this never happened. That's not what, how it went down. Uh, no knock on the people who lived during that time, but it was largely a function of segregation, the jury to segregation, where the the black business owners had a monopoly on the market because those black people weren't allowed to shop anywhere else. Yes, right. and if you want to make Greenwood in 1921 some kind of utopia, you have to elevate segregation to a kind of utopia because that's what exactly. the prosperous class, a very small class, but the black prosperous class's money was based on. Yeah, and they don't seem to want to point this out. It's, it's almost they use the hope or even the aspiration of self-determination by black people. They use that as a proxy to push their own agenda by flattening history and acting as if there weren't certain things existing. So yes, you're right. You would have to put segregation on the pedestal as well. And I don't think anybody wants to do that explicitly because that doesn't look good. But if you can circumvent that and just focus on this small group of black people, a group of black people who by and large still need the social capital of poor black folks, of working class black people to even function. So that's why I say in the essay, it's a universalizing of blackness because I like to flatten the experience and make it seem like this is something that we're all going through together and we all have the same interests. And as history has shown us, that's that's just not always the case. Uh, the, this particular class of black people has different interests and, and will subvert any cause to go against those interests, often in collaboration with the state. And in fact, this business district in Greenwood made its money off a very poor community of black folks, not the other way around. These poor black folks didn't climb the economic ladder because of these black businesses, which didn't employ many people at all. Right. So in Tulsa, during the time, you know, previous to the massacre, and even afterwards, it was a it was an oil boom that had brought a lot of the capital out to this area. Now, there was there was some settlements, you know, with natives you know, previous in, in the late 1800s, they were they were attempting to make black towns in, in Oklahoma. But Tulsa was bolstered by an oil boom and this spread westward by white settlers. And the black people, the jobs they were working were just the service jobs that came with that industry. They weren't allowed to work directly in oil. So they were service workers. They were domestic workers. The brother, uh, Dick Rowland, who was accused of rape and that started the, the whole massacre, he was a shoe shiner, right? And, and um, so, so you're right, these are direct descendants of slaves who were just picking up whatever jobs they could get to survive like any other group of black people at the time. This was not some huge rush of black wealth that just formed. You know, this is, again, it was a small class of people who were able to benefit from that. And I think by painting the narrative differently than how it went down, it's, it, we're able to obscure any class differences that we have. And like I said earlier, you're, you're able to rehabilitate the empire and you're able to push this narrative of black capitalism uh, as if that's somehow a solution to our problems. And this mythology of a black Wall Street distracts from the fact 
that the massacre in Greenwood began like so many other assaults on black communities and assaults on black rights. It began with a threat to lynch a black man who was accused of a sexual assault on a white woman. And white people also became enraged that armed blacks were prepared to defend their community with force. Right. They called it a Negro uprising. In response to the black men going to the courthouse, attempting to defend Dick Rowland from being lynched, right? It got such to the point where they weren't even interested in lynching Dick Rowland anymore. If you read the actual Tulsa riot report, they weren't interested in, in, in lynching him anymore because that wasn't enough for them. Now it was like, okay, these brothers went and got guns. Okay, we're going to take that to a different level. And it wasn't just vigilantes either. They were accommodated by the police at the time, and they were accommodated by the local National Guard. The police were giving them guns and giving them badges and swearing them in uh, to go put down this Negro uprising. So again, if you read the report, they don't make any direct reference to it being about uh, this Black utopia. That's just not how it is. Now, it's probably fair to assume that that had something to do with it, but when you read the events of the day on May 31st through June 1st, you don't see any primary evidence stating that they're burning this down because these black people have all these businesses. I mean, honestly, if you look at a map, Black Wall Street, the district, and again, I also want to add, this wasn't called Black Wall Street at the time. We don't really know how that happened. We know Booker T. Washington called it Negro Wall Street, allegedly. But it wasn't called Black Wall Street at the time. But anyway, the, the area that we now know as Black Wall Street is only roughly about three or four blocks. Over half the businesses existed within one building. Again, not to knock this area, but this wasn't a huge area. It's 35 blocks of a neighborhood, maybe three blocks of it was a business district. So there was more to it than just that as to why whites were doing what they were doing. And like you said, it was much more consistent with the times whether it was about rape or whether it was about a, a labor strike or something of that nature. That's what inspired the lynching. Yes, this was a mass collective punishment of Black people who were put into a mass detention. And much of the Greenwood Black population were run out of the state entirely and never returned. And in fact, Hundreds and hundreds of people cannot be traced in terms of their whereabouts and may have disappeared or met a bad end outside of Greenwood as they tried to escape the state entirely. Yeah, there's even reports about when they attempted to leave the city that all those surrounding cities were, were hostile towards them as well. And then there's also some Black people weren't even allowed to escape because they were put in internment camps, right? So they were held in camps in many ways tortured in these camps. Most of them were able to get away alive, but the police, instead of helping them or stopping the white vigilantes, actually went around and, and rounded people up and put them in camps, similar to the camps that we've you know come to know across the world. They put them in those type of camps, and, and while their homes were being destroyed, while their homes were being looted, while their businesses were being burned. But again, it wasn't just their businesses, right? It was, it was all 35 blocks. And today, most of that former neighborhood is owned by the state and it's been demolished. And that was done through policy. And you and I both referred to these white mobs as vigilantes. But in fact, 
thousands of them, possibly thousands of them, were deputized by the local authorities. And if they'd been deputized, then whatever was done, whatever they did, were crimes of the state. Yeah, this was the state. I think sometimes I think the state is just simply the government, and it, it, it's not. It, it's the entire capitalist, white capitalist interest, under this system at least. So, yeah, these people were given guns and badges. It actually is said in the report that the police would say, uh, get a badge and get a nigger, or get a gun and get a nigger, while they were giving them a badge. Um, it was get a gun and get a nigger. So this was definitely uh, sanctioned by the state. You know, and not only the local police, but also the local National Guard. I mean, these were some of the main people who were putting the black folks into the local National Guard. And it was the police handing out weapons. So, yeah, they were all deputized by the state. This was not some errant group of white vigilantes that were somehow able to overthrow the state. I think another thing that's important for that time period, this is right before in Tulsa, right before the Klan takes over, the Klan actually ends up using this as a recruiting tool um, in Oklahoma post-Tulsa to get more people in the Klan. And the Klan had gotten so huge in Oklahoma, I wasn't able to include this in in my essay, but the Klan had gotten so huge. In 1923, the governor of, of Oklahoma tried to call martial law against the Klan, and he was impeached. Only, I think only five governors have been impeached in the entire history of the United States, and that was one of the governors. He was impeached for trying to call martial law on the Klan because they had so, so much control over the state legislative body. So, again, this wasn't just some drunken redneck crackers. You know, that was part of it, but this was the state operating on its behalf and sending a message to these black people to to never rise up like that again, whether that was economically or don't ever bring guns downtown thinking you're going to tell us what to do. And all of this, this state involvement, has huge ramifications in terms of reparations. Right. Obviously, this massacre is one of many stories, but reparations in general, none of them have received reparations up to this point, right? None of the descendants that are still alive of this massacre have received any reparations, which is what makes it so ridiculous when Joe Biden gets on the stand just last week talking about a great nation acknowledges it's good and it's bad or whatever, but you haven't given reparations to any of these folks and you've not given reparations to black people in general, not just in America, but across the entire diaspora. So continuing to use these massacres as ways to prop up the Democratic Party or to just to prop up empire in general, if you were truly sorry, if there was such a thing as a great nation, if America could, could even be such a thing, which I highly doubt, you would bring reparations to the table. And, and that would only be a start. But again, they don't necessarily want to have that conversation. They just want to use it as a way to push black capitalism, which, as I noted in the essay, you saw at the same time that police precincts were burning last summer in 2020, you saw a huge increase in Google searches for black business and black Wall Street. Like you actually saw it, it reached its popularity of June 2020. So at the same time that there's dissent in the streets, America is trying to push this conservative ideology of black capitalism. We're going to give some money to black banks. We're going to give some money to black businesses. We're going to buy black. And this all circumvents the question of reparations. 
because instead of just giving black people the money that they're owed, we're going to make this about supporting businesses that, as as we know, don't have any real stake in the general economy and is not going to have any real stake on the material lives of most black people. Now, it's also largely forces within the black community that are perversely making Greenwood a celebration of black capitalism. And you look at uh, this phenomena as part of the universalizing of blackness, which is its own pitfall. Right, right. So a good example of this was was, uh, Killer Mike and Jesse Williams, who started the, the Greenwood app, and they were able to hustle $40 million into their hands by leveraging, again, this myth of Black Wall Street being this utopia of Blackness or whatever. But what you continue to find throughout history with this particular class of Black people is they're always going to leverage the worst things that happen to Black people, which generally are Black people who are impoverished, who are working class, or even, not necessarily in the case of Tulsa, but in general sometimes are of an identity that's marginalized as well. And these are the people who, who catch the most hell. You know, you know, Malcolm X talks about this in the message to the grassroots, talks about the field Negro, and they're the ones who caught the most hell. It's not to say the house Negro doesn't catch hell either. It's just to say that these people are catching the most hell, and you're going to leverage that so you can get $40 million, right? So by universalizing blackness, you're able to make it seem like anything that happens to black people happens in the same effect to all of us. We all have the same problems. We all experience the same racism at the same time. And there are no differences. There is no hierarchy. Um, There is no class structure at all. We're all getting hit by the white man at the same time. But when we look at specifically the police, it's poor black men of a younger age who, who are murdered by the police. It's not somebody who you know, the black man who lives in a suburb somewhere who might get pulled over for having a nice car. That serves as a good story for Hollywood, but that's not generally who's dealing with the police. That's not who's over police. So I note in the essay how LeBron James' son is not the same as Khalif Browder, who was 14 and incarcerated, who lived in an over-policed poor neighborhood. LeBron James' son is not the same. LeBron can, can bail out his son. Khalif wasn't even bailed out. So Khalif was awaiting trial while being tortured in jail. And then Khalif gets com- convicted because he doesn't have a lawyer he can, uh, he can um, afford and gets sent to Rikers Island. This is not going to happen to LeBron James' son or anybody of LeBron James' class because they have the ability to fight the system on some level with the money that they have. It doesn't mean that they're, they're not going to be profiled for being black, but it is not the same experience. And by selling it, that is the same experience. I also know the, the, the concept of elite capture you're able to collapse our interests and the people who are at the top, they're always going to be the ones to dictate what those interests are. And that's how you end up with a promotion of black business over defund the police or unionization or anything that's much more radical. So the black elite have largely captured the whole story of Greenwood. Yes. Yes, definitely. They've been able to run with numbers that, honestly, when you look them up, aren't even factual. And they've been able to sell this back to the the rest of us, that this is something we all have in common. So we all think that if we can go back to Greenwood, then we're all going to benefit. But if we were to truly go back to Greenwood, like you said earlier, it would be lifting up segregation. It would be most of us working terrible jobs for very little money, 
in substandard housing, and it would be them having a business district where they were able to make most of the money. And we might be able to feel a sense of symbolic pride in the fact that, oh, we can go down the street to a black grocery store, or we can go to a black movie theater, or whatever other business function. But generally speaking, we're not going to see any, any material or economic benefit from that. Um, it would just be a promise that they continue to sell to us so they can benefit. Now, again, like we were saying, just with white vigilantes, this is complemented by the state. The state wants to push this agenda as well, um, but there's no reality where going back to Tulsa or going back to Black Wall Street is going to be this great benefit for all of us. We actually live better today, as bad as things are, than the people lived during that time. That was Too Black, a poet and writer speaking from Indianapolis. Universities in the United States have become capitalist engines of extraction and destruction in black communities. So says Devarian Baldwin, a professor of American studies and founding director of the Smart Cities Lab at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Dr. Baldwin wrote an article in Black Agenda Report titled, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower. In the current moment, a lot of people don't understand the degree to which universities have such a major hold on our cities, and particularly the poor and working class and neighborhoods of color that largely surround these urban campuses. And this story, while I focus on the present day, I also trace back how we, like you said, how we got here. And there's a long story here. So Craig Wilder has done great work on the relationship between universities and slavery that goes back to the colonial era. But then if we come forward a little bit, move a little bit forward to the Civil War era, we can look at the Morrill Act of 1862 that has been celebrated as a democratization of public higher education for working class people. But we talk less about how the land that was used to create the endowments for these public, these land grant institutions was land grabbed from indigenous communities all over the country. And then we move a little bit forward and we look at a school like the University of Chicago that actually used racially restrictive covenants. Actually, they underwrote neighborhood associations on the south side of Chicago that then supported restrictive covenants because they wanted to protect the land values of the properties that surrounded their campus that they had invested in. And then we go forward to the Cold War era, and we talk a lot about how universities gained significant capital by conducting the research and development for military weaponry. We talk less about how issues around containment that we saw in a global landscape were also local. And during the so-called urban crisis, when cities were transforming to receive a greater number of brown people, universities that could not engage in white flight and were left in the cities received federal dollars. They lobbied to create an amendment to the Federal Housing Act of 1949 that would give any urban renewal project tied to a university $2 from the federal government for every dollar that the local um, development producers were creating or, or generating so that colleges and universities could engage in the demolition of neighborhoods that surround their campuses and either fill them with campus buildings or leave them vacant. And so then when we get to the current moment, to the contemporary era, actually around 2000, you had all these urban universities that were surrounded by either vacant land or mostly housing. And there was this return to the city by, you know, empty nesters, young professionals. There was, a, there was an interest in urban living, urban life. And universities were left flat-footed because they had done all this work to keep commercial development, mixed development, 
away from their campuses, away from the neighbors and the campuses. Now people want that urban experience. And at the same time, city leaders were competing with each other for these children of suburban sprawl who now want to come back into cities. They want to revitalize their tax base. So university leaders and city administrators got together to create policies and programs that benefited their shared interests to basically essentially turn cities into campuses as a mechanism to capture value and wealth that was trying to come back into the city. And obviously, in the neighborhoods that surround these campuses that have been divested and left to die, this new kind of investment in the return of the children of suburban sprawl had directly adverse effects on these communities largely of color, largely black and brown. And so this reality, what this meant on the ground, is that these black and brown neighborhoods were targeted for displacement when campuses expanded into the areas where they existed. These low-income people of color became the labor front, the low-wage workers in the ivory tower working class in food services and groundskeeping and, and, and support staff. And these universities had a hand in suppressing wages and disrupting possibilities for collective organizing. And then all of this new development, these new campus expansions, were surrounded by campus police. And most of us don't understand the degree to which campus police are not just the mall cop sitting there trying to break up a party. These are fully armed security forces with jurisdiction, in some cases, wherever there is a campus building in the city, and in other cases, with jurisdiction over the entire city. So either private, as if it's a private university, or quasi-private, if it's a public university, police forces with jurisdiction over non-university affiliates that are policing in the uh, with public authority, but are being directed by university interests, and they're policing black and brown in our neighborhoods. And so this is why I heed or bring warning to the formation of what I call the rise of universe cities. You write that we are witnessing higher education's growing control over the economic development and political governance of urban life. But are we really talking about higher education uh, doing all those uh, depredations in urban and especially Black America? Or is it the capitalist machinery of the university, the same machinery that also distorts the educational mission of higher education? Yes. What I'm talking about is what has happened when higher education, and particularly its administration, has become the face of capital management and wealth extraction. So that is right. And so the question becomes, universities are not inherently a problem. The campus has become a site over whether they will be people's universities or profit universities. And in the current moment of the knowledge economy, where academic research is being used to generate lucrative products and pharmaceutical industries and software products and military weaponry, how has higher education been leveraged to facilitate the new knowledge economy with detrimental effects, not just for the neighborhoods of color surround cities, but they are the canary in the coal mine for the future management of our entire urban landscape. And so this is the question. Are we going to be a people's university or a profit university? And we have precedents 
and particularly led by black folk in urban locations around cities where they have steered us towards different outcomes, different approaches to the uses of the university, thinking about the university as a commons, as a service to the communities that surround them. But we have lost that vision, and we are moving in a very different direction. You know, I can remember when many black folks had high hopes for higher education as a kind of political refuge where progressive and even revolutionary movements could be launched and mm -hmm. where political education could be raised to what we used to call a higher level. And I remember when mm -hmm. some of the people who started Black Studies at San Francisco State envisioned right. the Black Studies department as being a kind of launching pad for Black revolutionary activity out there in the community. But now we That's see right. these same institutions swallowing, devouring the Black community. That's a great point. And so in the book, I, I talk about some, not all of us, some of the early precedents that you're talking about that you're referring. So, you know, we have to remember that the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense partially began at, Mer at a college, at Merritt College. And because of the ways in which Merritt College was seen as an extension of the North Oakland community, you know, with street speakers and cafeteria conversations and trips to Cuba, that community college became an incubator for revolutionary thinking. If we go forward, we look at Crane Junior College on the south side of Chicago that had historically been a civic incubator for the white working class, but as the west side of Chicago transformed and changed and the demographics changed and it became prim primarily a black neighborhood, black students took over that college and renamed it Malcolm X Community College. And they instigated some of the first prison annexes for incarcerated residents and they fired the off-duty Chicago police that had policed the campus and hired an unarmed black security company to offer public safety in the neighborhoods. We have to think about the black and Puerto Rican students and their white allies in New York City at the City College and Brooklyn College who said, yeah, great, we have a free tuition, but our public schools have not prepared residents for social mobility, and so we need support services we think it should be the university's responsibility to compensate for the failed public schools so that the university can become a, a segue to social mobility. And so they instigated what became the open admissions policy. Uh, we look at 1968 when, the, uh, when Columbia University tried to put a gymnasium in the middle of Morningside Park and with an entrance for Columbia students at top and an entrance for Harlem residents at below, they charged Jim Crow, G-Y-M, and they occupied buildings for a week until they stopped that action. And so you're right, these institutions were seen as sites, possible incubators for revolutionary possibility. Even into the 1980s, a radical urban planner and scholar, Henry Lewis Taylor, when he first got to the University of Buffalo, they asked him to create some urban planning designs for thinking about how the urban, urban campus in Buffalo could be productive and, and engage in an urban way. And he put together a vision of the university as a commons, that every resident in the area should have membership to the university, they should use its facilities, they should have access to its gyms and its housing. And when the administration saw that plan, they were like, oh, no, we can't do that. So there are these wonderful possibilities and blueprints and frameworks in the historical archive of either projects that were shut down or never tried that could lead us towards a different way of thinking about the revolutionary possibilities of higher education and their campuses. You say that this, and you call it a, 
a rapacious wealth machine is based on our presumption that these universities serve a public good. What kind of evils stem from that designation of a public good? What does it cloak? For example, I call this the public good paradox. We presume that an institution of higher learning is a public good simply because it exists. But what that does on the ground, especially in the tax code, because, because institutions of higher learning are considered uh, public good, they are designated as nonprofit institutions, which means that their properties are tax exempt. Now, in earlier times when there wasn't this knowledge economy where we had these laboratories that was producing research and development that was being put on the market, it wasn't as big a deal. But after we have the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980 that allowed universities to take federally funded research and development and privatize it and sell it to private companies and then reap millions back in royalties, these lands, the land where these laboratories sit, become tax shelters for private wealth accumulation. And so under the cover of the land being presumed to be used for educational purposes, you have these public-private partnerships between universities and private companies like Google, Bombardier, other pharmaceutical companies, and they are producing research and development that is tax-sheltered, that is tax-free on these tax-exempt lands. And then when the research is sent out to market, the wealth comes back to the university and royalties. And then because these lands, these laboratories are on land in neighborhoods, the property values of our aunties and uncles that are on fixed incomes, their property taxes go up or the rental property costs go up. And these families and communities are displaced because they sit near these university properties. And then on top of that, the university affiliates benefit from the public schools, the snow removal, trash removal, public works that are paid for by the property taxes that they don't pay. So that's one way. Another way is through labor. If we think about this very, these very same laboratories, most of the work is done not by the high-profile superstar researcher, but his or her graduate students. Now, these graduate students with a bachelor's degree could go out and work, you know, at a company directly, but when they come to graduate school, they get a stipend, and they are not called workers, they are called apprentices. This is also part of that public good paradox, because under the shelter of presuming that universities are offering a public good and that they're not factories, when in fact they are, these graduate students receive a fixed stipend, they produce research that then goes to the market, reaps millions in royalties for the university and millions for the high-profile faculty member that oversees it, and they receive the same stipend. At the same time, you have low-wage workers who come onto campuses, and because it's a university, they work on a nine-month cycle. So in the summers, they are left without health benefits or commensurate wages. They're put on furlough, and their families still need these benefits. And then finally, policing. The idea is that university police are there to serve the public good in the form of public safety. But these police, especially the private police at the police at private universities, are not subject to Freedom of Information Act laws. So they can stop you and then don't have to report it. These are private police forces with public authority 
and no public oversight. And when we look at historically predominantly white universities in black neighborhoods, what this means is a two-tier policing system that students talk to me about, that a student and a resident can violate the same infraction. The student sees the dean of students while the resident goes through the criminal justice system. So what's happening here is that you have university police serving public functions in the university interest. When I talked to a state senator in Baltimore fighting against Johns Hopkins creating their own private police force, she called it, it's like building a Vatican City in the middle of Baltimore, a private republic with its own private security force. And further, you point out that these huge capitalist behemoths that the universities have become exert a pressure that actually sets the wage ceiling for all city workers Mm -hmm. and for private workers in the city, I would expect as well. That's right. Because universities are the largest employers in their cities, not just on their campuses, but in their cities of low wage workers, the wages they set sets the ceiling for wage levels across the city because if they raise their wage levels, other companies, both public and private, would have to follow to keep their workers. So the the realities and the terms that universities set in policing practices, in wage levels, in health standards with their medical schools, in land control, they create and they set the terms of economic development and governance for entire cities. The ivory tower is dead. Universities and colleges have become the companies and our cities have become their company towns. And there is a cost to those who live in their shadows. I do want to end on hope and possibility because some people hear me talk and, and read the scathing you know, analysis, this forensic account of the real function of universities. The first thing we must understand is we must get rid of the myth of the higher education as a schoolhouse, as simply a place that, that provides educational services. That is a fraction of what they do today that we must look at the other departments within the university, the the real estate department, the foundation, the development office, the police department. That's where the money is made and facilitated. But if we do that, then we can talk about a new university. A new university is possible, and we see it happening on the streets, especially during the pandemic, but even before. So during the pandemic, the University of Chicago was giving out grants to small black businesses in the neighborhoods because they couldn't survive during the pandemic. They started taking the food that is always thrown away every day in cafeterias and converting it into healthy meals for communities of need in the neighborhoods. But my question is, why couldn't we be doing this all the time? University of New Haven shamed Yale University because they start, they're a much more modest school. They started opening up their dormitories to first responders who didn't want to go home to their families and perhaps infect them with COVID-19. And so Yale got embarrassed that a less well-funded university was doing this and they followed suit. Why couldn't we create workers' housing on campuses, mixed housing on campuses for workers that work on campuses as a norm? And that points us to institutions like the University of Winnipeg, where I end my story in the book. This university understood that the family that can afford to spend $70,000 a year, that white family, because of the accumulation of wealth in the history of America, has skewed in that way. That ideal family has almost become a unicorn. They can't even support that economic framework. 
And so many schools have, returned, have, have turned to austerity, to closing down, to shrinking their schools. But they're missing that there are whole communities, largely of color, black, brown, indigenous, that are Pell eligible, that could serve as the foundation for sustaining campuses towards the future. But if you look to those neighborhoods and those families, you're going to have to offer different kinds of campuses, a different kind of vision of what higher education is. And the University of Winnipeg saw that when their school transformed to being, from being primarily white to being more uh, immigrant, what they call new Canadian and indigenous. And they had said, well, in order to support these families and these, and these students, at the behest of student protest, let's be clear, they had to create a new vision of the campus. So they started creating housing that had dormitory-style units on top and family townhouse units on the bottom. They extended their child care facility for the community. They began to create mixed housing where it would be housing that was created for both university affiliates and city residents at all levels, from premium to market rate to affordable rate to rate geared to income. So they started generating a different vision of the campus. One of the faculty members said, well, that's not good enough because most indigenous residents will never even step foot on the downtown campus. So he took his Center for Inner City and Urban Universities in the 1960s tradition, and he moved his department into the middle of the North End, the predominantly indigenous North End. He took, with the help of community leaders, he took what had been a drugged in, a single room occupancy hotel and converted it into an educational and residential hub that had affordable housing, educational classrooms, kitchens for the residents in the neighborhood. So my point here is that if we look at the traditions of thinking about the revolutionary possibilities that we discussed from the 1960s, and we move forward, we have bits and pieces of, of the continuation of the reclamation of that model in the present. And so we can reclaim these canvases, and we can make them people's universities that service the neighborhoods. And if we do that, we will be transforming much broader conversations around intellectual property, living wages, affordable housing, because these universities are controlling these levers in cities. If we transform the universities, it can be a model for more just and humane cities more broadly. That was Professor Devarian Baldwin speaking from Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. The Green Party recently took a look at Joe Biden's first 100 days in office with a focus on the new president's war policy. One of the speakers was Julie Varaghese of the Black Alliance for Peace. Varaghese said the U.S. is waging a cold war with China because Washington is losing the global economic competition. If anyone remembered that big pool party that happened last year in China, in fact, it happened in Wuhan, which was the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak. Now, if people remember, it was a concert and people were jumping up and down and dancing in a pool side by side, no social distancing, no physical distancing, and certainly no masks. How can that be? It's because China effectively managed the COVID-19 situation through state action coupled with public action. And I assert that that's at the heart of the United States' hybrid war against China, that China could manage to beat back a virus 
and then be the only country to experience economic growth in a year every other country was suffering, that's the issue. The so-called elite countries that make up the G7 are not so elite and not doing so well. Journalist Martin Jopp called it, uh, said that, you know, these are global, supposedly global leaders, but now they've just been, they've come down to just be, being merely an ideological sect, which is anti-China. And that's, except, that's essentially what they aim to do is to take down China. But that seems to only apply to the United States. Other member states of the G7 don't want to break it off with China, especially seeing that, you know, for example, ger many German companies have factories ringing the Chinese city of Wuhan. Why would Germany or Italy or France or J Japan want to break it off with China when they're having it so good? The West is divided and the United States is in decline and the United States now can no longer get its way like it used to. So propaganda works really well. People who normally cannot stand Trump still repeat his talking points about COVID-19 being the China virus or the Wuhan virus or Kung flu. And uh, Biden has fallen right in line with all that Trump has been, had been saying in attacking China. And even going so far as to say China was hiding information despite the World Health Organization, whatever you think about the WHO, the WHO applauded China for investigating the origins of COVID-19 in that country. And Biden's also been repeating Steve Bannon's talking point about a lab leak and using that to ramp up the war against China. An article in the New York Times recently exposed that the US military leadership was pressing US President Eisenhower back in 1958 to bomb Chinese cities at the behest of the Kuomintang. A, the Kuomintang were the uh, Chinese nationalists that the Chinese communists had driven out of the country back in 1949. The accusation now is that China is practicing so-called mercantilism, meaning that it's focusing too much on trying to develop its own country instead of trying to keep the cost of labor in China low enough so that US and other Western powers can profit as much as possible. But in this case, the mercantilism, they're focusing their criticism on China's rail infrastructure with its high-speed trains. China has 146,000 miles of railways and 23,000 miles of just for high-speed rail. And these trains can go into mountainous remote terrain in China. As my comrade Danny Haifang of the Black Agenda Report mentioned, that what the United States is basically doing is, quote, trying to say that it's a high crime against the free market is what China is doing, as though it's like this big offense against the rest of the world or really against the United States. In fact, the war against China had for a while before Biden came into office, it had been, it had been portrayed as a tech war where the United States and its allies needed to supposedly guard against China tracking and surveilling people in the West who used Huawei phones. Now, Huawei at one point was a public project in China, and it's now a private company. So why would a private company be tracking and surveilling people in the West? Well, it turns out actually the NSA is the biggest spy agency in the world, and the NSA is the national security agency for the United States. That means that the United States is the biggest spy in the world, not China. And we have Edward Snowden to thank for revealing that information. 
Now, there's an interesting turn of events because like Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton is a transatlanticist, meaning that she uh, aligns with the kind of liberal class of people in Europe across the Atlantic Ocean who uh, tend to use neoliberal austerity to kind of keep the situation under control or, or derive more and more profits for the elites as capitalism devolves. And besides being a transatlanticist, though, she also sounds like she might be a communist. Why do I say that? Because recently she encouraged the United States and its allied states in Europe to, quote, take back the means of production. That sounds like she's using uh, revolutionary terms. So it's almost like as revolutionaries, we need to really get sharp in how we come up with our slogans so that they can't be co-opted. But Danny Haifang also mentioned in his analysis is that the war in China will involve building up U.S. infrastructure, but it's going to come at a cost to the United States, to the actual people in the United States. It'll involve tax incentives, as Hillary Clinton suggested. But the thing is that she recognized that you can't get U.S. companies just give more money to pay workers in the United States unless there is an incentive. But what do these tax incentives mean? It usually means austerity for the people in the form of crumbling roads, crumbling schools, and lack of health care. So this war in China turns out to be a war on humanity. A think tank called the International Technology Innovation Forum called for sanctions on China for its so-called mercantilism, even suggesting that the World Bank should take back funds that China had requested for its high-speed rail system. I need to note, though, that the International Technology Innovation Forum is funded by corporations like Walmart and Amazon, but also technology and defense firms like Northrop Grumman and Boeing. It's also funded by the Australia Strategic Policy Institute, which had released those bogus satellite photos of Uyghur concentration camps. Now, the issue of Uyghurs is interesting, too, because China has been at the forefront of stopping terrorism in Central Asia. Why is that? Some extremist elements have been attempting to turn the autonomous region province of Xinjiang into East Turkestan. Even before the 9-11 attacks in 2001, China and Russia had kickstarted the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which was at first made up of just a few countries in Central Asia, plus China and Russia. The goal of the SCO was to beat back radical Islamism, meaning that kind of perverted form of Islam that was then deployed to uh, rally certain people who were already um, deprived of uh, opportunities to live their best lives because the economies in their countries were so terrible for even for a very educated people. So the uh, this Islamism was, was in the region and it was threatening everybody in the Asian continent from the West all the way to the East. So China ended up leading that process before 9-11 even started. And then, and even now, China's also leading the trilateral process currently involving Afghanistan, Pakistan, and China to aid the peace process in, Af in Afghanistan to help rebuild that country and to also stop the East Turkestan Islamic movement that the United States denies exists. But why would the United States deny it? Because then it would have to admit the reason China might be detaining and re-educating people in Xinjiang might have to do with extremist elements that are terrorizing 
the people of Xinjiang in their effort to break away from China to create their own country. Of course, the Uyghur issue ties in with, the China, with China's Belt and Road Initiative, which the United States appears to be trying to stop with its military and mercenary presence in Afghanistan. I assert that the Uyghur situation, the Iraq WMDs, the incubator babies in Kuwait, and the Hong Kong pro-democracy, so-called pro-democracy protesters, that they're all related. It really brings me now to what this new Cold War really means. I assert, as do some of my comrades, that the new Cold War, or the Cold War itself, does not refer to a time frame, but to an ideological conflict. It started back in 1492 when, as my comrade Ajamu Baraka says that Europeans, quote, spilled out of Europe. I actually love that he says that because you can really see and understand what he means by that, that they spilled out of Europe to invade and genocide the people and beings of the so-called Americas. And that war never ended because it swept across the rest of the world with these so-called explorers looking for ways to loot places all over the world. That war is still happening today in Haiti, where the people are fighting for their right to govern themselves as imperialists who are trying to prop, prop up a new colonial puppet named Jovenel Moise. And uh, Jovenel Moise says that he has a right to stay in office past his term. Democrats in the United States support that. But when Trump was saying he was going to stay in office past his term, Democrats were in an uproar over that. Isn't that interesting? That's actually pretty ironic. So that war is happening. And also, you know, in Bolivia, there was a, a coup that happened in 2019. Right-wingers were backed by the United States trying to take over the government, and they took it over for a, almost a year. And again, in China, the Belt and Road Initiative, it's not just an economic project. It's an anti-colonial expression. It, people remember China was colonized by Europeans and this project, this Belt and Road Initiative is a way for China to push back against the way things have been going in the world for the past more than 500 years. So for people like myself and for my comrades in the Black Alliance for Peace who find themselves within the Black radical tradition, war is a class issue. The elites want us to view their enemies as our enemies. They want us to sign off on their desire to do a first strike on China and Russia's nuclear launchers. We say no way. We as colonized and oppressed people, working class people, poor people, we view China and Russia way differently and we have a right to and we're going to assert that right to view China and Russia differently. So it's not a Cold War then, it's a war of the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy against communist movements, against national liberation movements, and essentially against collective humanity. Once we've correctly determined who the enemy is, then we'll be able to effectively organize, and that's when we'll win. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.